Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. One begins life with a certain innate personality, what Buddhists have viewed as residual karma from a previous life, a lump of clay ready to be shaped, but already exhibiting certain surprisingly distinctive forms. As a boy and then a man grows, as he makes decisions and acts in response to the world in which he lives, he slowly but continually reshapes that personality, as often as not, without improving it. To commit to a Buddhist practice is to undertake to shape that lump of clay into something astonishingly beautiful something marked by virtue, serenity, and wisdom. To take up monastic practice is to recognize the preposterousness of ordinary life and its threat at each stage to the potential beauty of a human life. To take up monastic practice is to pass through the looking glass, to live on the other side according to the way things really are, rather than how they appear to the untaught. I ordained as a bhikkhu in Myanmar in 2009. I lived there for 13 months, during which time communication with the outside world was very difficult. Luckily, I had occasional access to a computer and a very slow and unreliable internet connection, which the military government periodically shut down for political reasons. In order to communicate, I started a blog to which I could email postings for friends and relatives back home, even though the blog itself was invisible within Myanmar, along with a lot of sites that the government chose to censor. Nonetheless, I began recording my adventures and posting them. Upon returning to the States, I was surprised at the large number of stories that had been posted. For a time, I was having so much fun, I began posting stories about my earlier life, particularly my path toward Buddhist practice, Zen ordination, then Theravada ordination. Eventually, I compiled these into a book that I called Through the Looking Glass. I thought for a few weeks I would share some of the hopefully more inspiring and funnier stories with listeners of this podcast. In my mid-40s, maybe shortly before the time that I arrived in Austin, I had begun to reflect that I had had little idea of what constitutes a worthwhile life, nor what set of values, goals, or operating principles I might otherwise profitably have embraced to carry me through life. I certainly had lived neither happily nor harmlessly in the world, rather bumbling along with remarkably little reflection, ensnared in impulses 
and problems. Moreover, I had very little I could pass on to my fast-growing kids in the way of wisdom, in the hopes that they might do better. I had been living like an elephant in a match factory. I had attained normalcy after a decades-long struggle against that very eventuality. I was living, like most people, a life of quiet desperation. I drank a bit too much each evening, ate chips and watched movies, was getting a bit chubby, read mysteries, had my house, car, and carbon footprint, ordered clothes by catalog, went to movies, and to the opera with my girlfriend, made love afterwards, worried about the mess the world was in, donated to charities and causes, worried about various tasks at work, and about being up to snuff, worked too hard, got older, and couldn't do anything about any of this. I had been given every early opportunity in this life and had once years before even taken a tiger by the tail and mastered it, venturing where no man had ventured before. But my opportunity this time around was now all but squandered. I began to suspect that there must be a skill to life, just as there is a skill to playing chess, a skill to conducting scholarly research, a skill to buying a cantaloupe, a skill to making sense of daily news in spite of the spin. I imagined I must have come at birth with a handy instruction manual, Little Johnny Operator's Manual, but my parents had lost it. They must have. Where is that skill of life to be found? Who can teach it to me? Dear Abby, Dale Carnegie, Steve Jobs, Friedrich Nietzsche, a good shrink, the Pope? Aha! I awoke one morning. That must be what religion is for. I had a hunch religion must serve some purpose other than to vex scientists and cocky smart Alex with alternative views of the origin of species, of the age of the earth, or of what happens after we die, and it must have a manifestation beyond filling the airwaves with frosty snowmen and ardent herald angels during the season to be jolly. Before this, I had little idea what. So how does someone who is smart but not wise become both smart and wise? Simple. One reads about people who have proved themselves wise and about what they have had to say or write, and then he thinks about all this real hard. I would one day recognize the importance of reflection and seclusion in this. Reflection can make smart or it can make wise. The difference is that without seclusion, reflection merely makes one clever in a limited way because one has too much at stake in the outcome of what one is reflecting. But my provisional conclusion at this juncture was to be quite fruitful. A relentless student, I began to procure books in comparative religion than about specific religions. I was already pretty certain that meditation was a component of the skillful life, for my experiences in that area, while not profound, had suggested deeper possibilities. 
For instance, of taking responsibility for my own mind rather than leaving it, subject entirely to the slings and arrows of external circumstance, no matter how outrageous or unfortunate these may be, or of exercising and developing the long-neglected, mysterious inner qualities I had once recognized in myself as a child. I had read all the way through the Bible a couple of decades earlier, mostly out of curiosity, and seemed to recall a tangled nest of inconsistency except for one shining golden egg, the ministry and teachings of Jesus, with his emphasis on personal renunciation, a rich kingdom within, and expansive kindness and service to others, particularly to the least fortunate. Unfortunately, the Christians in my circle of acquaintances seem to fall short of anything close to this shining example. Though one day I would, in fact, meet such eggs. Instead, my deliberations traveled eastward from the Semitic lands into India and China toward the wisdom traditions of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism. No lesser authorities than the Beatles had gone to India long before to seek spiritual guidance and enlightenment. What's more, my homeland, the San Francisco Bay Area, had long been a hotbed of Buddhism. As a young man, I had been aware of the presence of Suzuki Roshi, the San Francisco Zen Center and the Tassajara Monastery, though I was not at that time sufficiently curious to investigate myself. I had even oft eaten of Tassajara bakery bread produced, I understood, by Zen monks, and darn good bread delivered to the finest hippie food stores and restaurants throughout the Bay Area. However, I now found myself in the middle of the country, far from such wholesome influences, for I now lived in Austin, Texas. In my reading, I was immediately struck by the simple logic of the Buddhist teaching, which runs something like this. This is the human dilemma, and this is what we do about it. Making no appeal to some questionable third party, the logic was impeccably pragmatic. And when I read about said human dilemma, it aligned remarkably with my experience. Moreover, images already inhabited my mind from a source I couldn't recall of peace, serenity, and wisdom, of gentle, simple-robed monks and nuns meditating in deep forests and on tall mountains, of haiku and rock gardens, of penetrating to the heart of matters. I read widely and dusted off my near-dormant, nearly two decades old meditation practice. I read of Zen masters and their crazy wisdom, of Tibetan lamas who lived in caves, of wandering mendicant monks meditating serenely at the roots of trees and living on alms. I read of the path of practice of the perfection of kindness, compassion, and virtue of the development of wisdom, penetrating insight into the way things are and into one's own mind and being, and of the serene and blissful dwelling place of samadhi. 
except for my tenuous connection through meditation. This was a world apart from what I had experienced thus far in my adult years. It seemed to call me back from a distant past. I read even more deeply and began meditating at home every day without fail. I began to long for companionship on the path, people with whom I could meditate and discuss Buddhist teachings. I knew there were other Buddhists in a cosmopolitan city like Austin. But first, what kind of Buddhism should I pursue? My reading revealed three options. Theravada, Orthodox and severe, Zen, freewheeling and attuned to the rhythms of nature, and Tibetan, mysterious, dark, and colorful. At this point, I did a smart and what seemed to me to be a wise thing. I drew up a table that listed what I took on the basis of my reading thus far to be major distinguishing features of these three major traditions of Buddhism and marked my level of approval for each. Ritual, magic, sound philosophy, metaphysics, pessimistic, optimistic, and spontaneity unorthodoxy. Then I marked each intersection of tradition and feature with a plus minus, or zero to indicate my level of approval. In retrospect, I'm surprised at the feature categories I chose and am astonished at the hubris to have thought I was at all qualified at that point to make such evaluations, seeing now that they were based on the very folksy notions that had failed to produce in me a satisfactory life so far. I had little inkling of what I would be getting myself into. For instance, under ritual, I assumed that the absence thereof was a good thing and that the presence was bad. So the plus allocated to Zen ritual reflects a positive view of its absence, and likewise, the negative given to Tibetan ritual reflects a negative view of its presence. Part of my naivete about Zen and these features in general was encouraged by reading Alan Watts, whom I assumed was one of the greatest authorities on the matter, unaware that, in spite of his literary abilities and enthusiasm for what he had discovered in Zen, he wasn't. I would later learn that ritual is, in fact, a quite pronounced feature of Zen Buddhism, but by that time would also have evolved entirely different criteria for assessing these features. In the end, Zen got all pluses, Theravada got three pluses, two minuses, and a zero, Tibetan three minuses, two pluses, and a zero. Silly as this table was in retrospect, I have never regretted the upshot. I would join a Zen group. This was a time before people had websites, but I did find on the internet an obscure article that had appeared in some Austin newspaper a couple of years before and that made reference to a Zen-oriented group facilitated by a Dave whose phone number I looked up and dialed. The group met at the Quaker Friends Meeting House. Dave had practiced at the San Francisco Zen Center, 
a Soto Center founded by Shunryo Suzuki Roshi, who had written a book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which I procured and read. In the past, I had generally meditated in a plush chair with my knees pulled up to rest on the arms. Now I had to get used to sitting on the floor. I soon procured a Zafu to sit on and a Zabutan to camp out upon and began to bring them to our Thursday meetings. I learned from Dave that there were, in fact, four weekly Zen sitting groups in Austin, each of which I would visit in the coming months. A couple of peculiar features of the group closest to home were that we had to do three bows each week, things Alan Watts had explicitly assured me I would not have to do, and ten minutes of strange walking meditation sandwiched between two meditation periods. A third group followed the teachings of the famous Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, author of many, many books, some of which I procured and read. The fourth group I only heard about, for they did a lot more bows, I was told, and chanting than even the second group did. So I let that be. And yet in the coming years, I would have a history primarily with that fourth group. I cherish the years I spent sitting and learning in these simple weekly meditation groups in an occasional weekend retreat facilitated by a Zen teacher from California. A new world and a new way of being was opening up for us as we found our way together into these profound practices and teachings. Thank you.